and that sound means the start of the 56th missile for the masses. This is the Chaplain's Assistance Motorpod, and I am your host, Gary. And this is a restart. Uh, I am recording this. I'm right now in the editing phase of missile number 56. But today at 2.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Super 7 went on Pixel Dan's YouTube show. I'll put the link in the description below and announced that they have secured the rights to produce O-ring figures for G.I. Joe. And this is absolutely huge, incredible news. And I feel that I need to comment on this because it's really kind of part of what I was kind of talking about during my uh, portion of this show where I'm talking about what's going on in my life of collecting because this really affects me and the fact that I enjoy the O-ring scale best. I am a huge fan of vehicles and playsets and even trailers. So O-ring figures interact with that scale, you know, the 118th scale is where I play and it allows me to have more than just characters on a shelf. And you can build dioramas and not take up too much space. You know, that being said, I do have a flag and that takes 32 square feet of floor space all on its own. So this is huge news. This is a great get for Super 7. Brian Flynn admitted in the interview that he's been after this for a long time off and on with Hasbro and that their success with the reaction line and their ultimates line and their super cyborg, you know, though with those scales and those products being as successful as they have, have given Hasbro the confidence to finally seed O-ring manufacturer to a third party. This is something that I have been talking about if you've listened in the past that I thought this was probably Hasbro's best idea for something that as much as it pains me to admit it is a niche product so it's better for them to just have somebody else pay them a licensing fee so they don't have to take all the risk of manufacturing on themselves so he did mention in their interview that they're going to be going after Deke, Sunbow, and Marvel Comics characters that they haven't gotten or characters in outfits that are unique and we haven't gotten either. There is just so many characters in the comic line that I could rattle off and so many in the Sunbow line. Honda Lou is, the, is my favorite one. This is going to be, this is a huge get for Super 7. I'm super excited. And I wish them the best. Now, I'm going to kind of talk about what I originally did before I go back uh, into some other segments. So, like I said, this is a re-recording. It's a little bit different. And it's a little very off the cuff. But one of the big things I talked about, or one of the big things going on in my life of collecting, is I recently hit an impasse with 
my other hobby, which is collector cars, uh, restoration. I own a 1971 Dodge Challenger. It was sent to a shop seven and a half years ago. And the guy worked on it off and on for a few years. And he got to a point where it was pretty far along, but then he just stopped working on it for, let's just say, a combination of reasons, uh, some of which was health. And he started, you know, mucking about with it again about a year ago. And then he was diagnosed uh, this year with cancer and he passed away. So one of the things going on in my life has been for the past four four and a half months is what to do with this huge, I mean, huge as in it takes up a lot of space, my car, and what to do with it. Is it coming home? Is it going to another shop? Do I sell it? Do I keep it? A whole bunch of questions. And the financial commitment to this is surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, much larger than that it is to my G.I. Joe collection. You know, uh, I've, I've owned my car since 2009 and, uh, so, but I've been, you know, I've been really collecting Joe since 2011 and, you know, I've been collecting G.I. Joe comics, you know, regularly since the Devils do relaunch in 2001. So these are hobbies that, you know, have exi- coexisted in my life and in a couple of weeks ago, I finally found a shop that I felt comfortable with and I was able to move the car to. And one of the biggest problems though, two weeks ago was the fact that the budget that I had eight years ago is completely shattered uh, because eight years ago, things were cheaper. We all have inflation that affects our lives. So with the new shop taking it on, the my budget has basically been thrown out the window. It's a huge expense. It's either doubled or tripled or I haven't gotten the final tally yet, um, but it might have even quadrupled uh, in cost. So the money I had already budgeted it is much smaller than what I need now how this affects my life of collecting. Well, um, the biggest thing, the final nail in the coffin was today. Um, the GI Joe classified line, I'm out. Uh, I've, you know, supported the has labs. I've gotten figures and stuff. And I'm not saying that I'm not going to collect any, but I'm not going to collect. I've already had already backed off on collecting every, I had already sold a couple here and there. And, now I'm basically, unless the unless the figure really speaks to me, something that we haven't gotten before, uh, I'm I'm not just not I'm just not going to get it. I'm just going to pass on it. My Haslabs, um, I'm not going to open them. I'm going to sell them and create funds for my car and also to continue to keep room for the Super Seven offerings because. I am going to dive down the Super 7 hole. I'm looking forward to getting my Captain Min figure. So there is things 
that I am truly, truly, truly looking forward to with this new revival of O-Ring line. Brian Flynn is a fan, uh, just like me, just like you, the listener. I hope if you're listening to this and you're not a fan of G.I. Joe, I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you just like to hear me ramble and I have a soothing voice for the ASMR reactions. But anyway, the Super 7 thing is huge news. In the end, I'm out of classified. Anybody that contacts me through the show or social media looking for stuff of mine, I'm not. I'm going to ignore. Um, I do not use this platform to sell my things, but I use this platform to talk about what's going on in my life and then talk about comics and other current events and review a vehicle, playset, or even a trailer from the G.I. Joe, a real American hero toy line from 1982 to present day. Now back to G.I. Joe. In other current event news, about a month ago, I had Steve from G.I. Joeberg on, and I want to thank him for the last two appearances. And we talked about the Super 7 Mothership. Now, that is a product that I'm really excited about. It is something that I want. It it, it will go and complement my G.I. Joe O-ring collection nicely. And it's a and I've already paid uh for you know my $500 plus $100 shipping. And I'm kind of excited to get it. However, it's about two weeks left. It has stalled at over 1400 backers out of the 4,000 needed for the minimum funding goal. So in the next two weeks, it is going to be interesting to see if it will fund or not. Of course, there's always that final push, but how big is that push going to be? I've been following the Forgotten Figures blog. You know, he's been keeping a daily or every week, he keeps a daily update of the the gains that the campaign has made. And it really is going to depend on timing, people's budgets, Christmas bonuses, and all sorts of things. I really would still like to, to fund. I still would like my one to come here. But I'm just... You know, not sure what's going to happen there. You know, I already paid my money for it. So my credit card bill, you know, I pay it off and it's it's paid for. So it'd be just, it's it will be interesting to see if it funds. And if it doesn't, I just don't need to worry about paying my cable bill for a couple months. G.I. Joe will return after these messages. So next up, is I want to talk about the other two comic books from Skybound currently being printed, and that is Void Rivals. I haven't talked about that in several months, issues four through six, and my impressions of it is it definitely leans into that season three of Transformers with the Skuxoid and the Quintessons. It's really continued to be the adventures of Solila and Derek as they try to escape Solila's half of the ring and with all the discoveries of what is keeping their, their halves apart 
as they try to figure out, you know, how to move on. And it's definitely its own unique story. And with issue six, it also brings a break. So there's going to be a pause in Void Rivals so that the Transformers series, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, and the new G.I. Joe series can catch up in the storyline. So it's been a good read. It's been a lot of character development and world building, and I'm enjoying it. And I'm looking forward to when they come back from their break. And like I said before, I am also reading the Transformers book by Daniel Warren Johnson and Mike Spicer. And I will say that because I do have that rudimentary knowledge of the characters from the Sunbow cartoon, I am not well versed in the comic book lore, I have read a little bit during the IDW era, and I do have all the Marvel comics, so I'm just starting a read-through of those. I'm complementing that read-through with the Longbox Crusades uh, Transformers Chronicles podcast. This story that Johnson is telling is impactful in the fact that it can be very brutal at times. It is well laid out. I'm not a huge fan of his line work. I think it is good in the fact that he is able to tell the story, but sometimes I feel his proportions aren't 100% right, and I don't get the impression that anything's being exaggerated for effect. But other than that, let's say, relatively minor quibble. I think it is actually a really well put together book. And it's been, like I said, pretty powerful to read in the fact that there are events happening that are much different than previous continuities. And by straying from that, which is what I'm familiar with, makes me want to read more. Now, the one interesting fact from issue two is we finally get our first continuity glimpse of a G.I. Joe in the Energon universe. So it is nice to get, you know, something rather than just the previews in the backs of these books of the Duke series and the Cobra Commander series, which I'm not going to lie, the previews of the G.I. Joe books is more in line with what I want to read, but I am happy that right now this series is only going to be about four books until the Duke and Cobra Commander miniseries go away in favor of the main G.I. Joe book. I would be interested to see if they do something similar to IDW and have a Cobra book as well but that's all speculation on my part. Now back to G.I. Joe. So for the 56th missile, today I'm going to be covering the G.I. Joe Retaliator from 1990. And the Retaliator was available in 1990 and discontinued for 1991. The Retaliator I'm reviewing 
has its roots going back to before Joe Fest 2023, because about the time Joe Fest was coming up, I was like, well, what am I going to buy at the show? And and I still am on like a helicopter kick. And I was looking through, you know, things I didn't have yet. And I took one look at the Retaliator and I said, this thing appears to be pretty cool. And like any other good purchase, I did no research before buying it other than looking at yojo.com and not even so much as 3D Joe's and just got a layout for all the parts and stuff. And this is going to come in handy later on in the review when I go over things to watch out for. But we'll just say that the one I picked up at Joe Fest is now replaced by one that I picked up on eBay. It was essentially a shell, but it had one important feature that the one at, G at Joe Fest didn't have. Now, to begin with any review of a toy, I will look at the box and how it was marketed, in this case, in 1990. And it's a large, you know, white box. This is a larger vehicle. It is the Retaliator, a bomb dropping rescue copter. And it includes pilot updraft. And on the front, it shows trigger claw lowers to capture vehicles and figures. And it's showing the Retaliator capturing Overlord in his dictator. And then the next picture is tail arm fully extends. And that's kind of a misnomer as in reality, it pivots down. The back of the box selling the features is spinning rotor blades, spinning turbines, activate rotor blades, trigger activated capture claw, rescue winch, pilot included, high tech bomb dropping mechanism with nine bombs, twin missile pods each with detachable missiles, opening canopy with two-figure cockpit, landing skids, and machine gun. After bombing Cobra's main hydroelectric plant, Retaliator roars to a hot battle site to evacuate a squad of G.I. Joes and their equipment using its sophisticated capture claw and rescue winch. And this had a six flag points value. Now, one thing I forgot to mention on the front, and as you can hear in the background, I do own the box for this. This is from my Joe Fest purchase. It shows updraft in the rear seat piloting the Retaliator. In the front gunner's position, we have topside. And dangling from the lifting hook on the rope is freefall. You know, it's a solid, uh, solid image. It looks exactly like the toy. There's no false advertising here. Um, the one thing that I will say that it's advertising on the box that I did not know, and this is my fault, um, because when I do these reviews, I try not to be influenced by other reviews or not to copy something somebody else has said. I didn't know when I bought this that you spun the turbine 
like rotors that are on each side. And then it in turn turned the blade. I thought it was more like a tomahawk where you just spun the blades around with your finger. In a nutshell, that is what was wrong with my Joe Fest purchase. And so a little background information about the Retaliator, again, courtesy of creating G.I. Joe Volume 7 by Dan Klingensmith. Updraft was designed by Kurt Grohn. He had an alternate name known as Eggbeater. And then we have the Retaliator, which it did have the original name Switchblade. And the Retaliator was designed by Frank Coronius. In these pictures, Dan Klingensmith shows their final presentation art for Updraft and the Retaliator. And the prototypes and mock-up of the Retaliator in an earlier process with some features that were revised before it was the final product um, regarding some, you know, safety concerns for children. So we'll start with Updraft first, and we'll begin with his file card. Updraft, the Retaliator Pilot. File name, Matthew W. Smithers. Primary military specialty, Retaliator Pilot. Secondary military specialty, Weapon Systems Officer. Birthplace, Bismarck, North Dakota, grade 03. That's a captain. Updraft led the American team to victory two years in a row at the World Helicopter Championships and was a special instructor at the Flight Warrant Officer School at Fort Rucker before being selected for duty with G.I. Joe. His hands-on experience played an integral role in the final design of the Retaliator helicopter. Updraft's input greatly added to the copter's maneuverability, heavy lift capability, and battlefield survivability. Updraft molds the retaliator to him the way he would a new suit. The machine becomes a part of him and even takes on his body language. If the G.I. Joes are in a hot situation, they'd like to see Updraft fly in to lay down cover fire and get them out of there. So this is a 1990 figure, so I don't think Larry Hama wrote that file card, although it is not as superhero-y as some of the other ones are from this era. The other thing, too, is he comes from North Dakota. So, again, most of the characters from this area were coming from Rhode Island, Massachusetts, basically being Hasbro employees. Maybe they got maybe they got a transplant from North Dakota. For 1990, this guy is basically the standard construction. And for me, I like to call him a deluxe driver figure. And that's because he has a removable helmet and a pistol. So he's bringing extra value on top of the vehicle. And with a six flag point redemption, you know, this is a higher priced item for 1990. Let's start with his legs. He's got brown boots, brown knee pads, which extend up much like a Cobra Trooper or Scrap Iron or Airborne of the earlier era, or from this era, you could say dogfight. And he has a brown holster on his right thigh. Carries over to the waist with the straps and the belt. And the pants themselves are a light beige, almost, almost khaki, but a little bit lighter than khaki. He has a gray flight suit with brown accents. He has a dagger or knife over his left breast. And he's got a central zipper. He's got like leather top half, much like Clutch does in the 82 to 84 versions. 
and even like a little hose that comes out of his right breast and goes around to his back. The brown like leather theme is carried down central, down his back spine, and he has brown elbow pads that extend past his elbows. There's a lot going on here with a lot of extra plastic, so he doesn't feel cheap. He's also wearing brown gloves, you know, fingerless gloves and knuckleless gloves, because when you're punching somebody, you want them to feel your knuckles and you don't really value your knuckles so much. His head has brown hair parted down the middle, you know, with the same brown paint using for his eyes, eyebrows. And it's a smaller head for the body, but it's not too small, if you would say, but I know some people will call it one of those shrunken heads. The helmet is molded in gray with a silver visor painted on. Now, looking at some of the pictures, the visor would normally be clear, so they're probably painting it silver to mimic that of the light bouncing off the helmet coming through the clear visor, and it's kind of rubbery, so it slides in and off without damaging his head paint. The gun is hard plastic, molded in gray. It is oversized, has an angled handle. It doesn't really resemble too much of something that I recognize. It seems to have a either a silencer or an extended barrel. If it is if it's an extended barrel, it looks like it has cooling fins or something that would allow you to hold the barrel of the rifle in your non-shooting hand as it fires. Or again, it could also be a silencer. And also, the gun has a scope for aiming. Overall, for updraft, I like the figure enough on its own, but not enough that I would buy this if it was carded. In 1990, they were still, you know, doing backpacks and other things. I think there's a lot of effort in updraft that allows him to be useful in other avenues as well. So, but he wouldn't look out of place piloting, say, a tomahawk or working with Wild Bill. So he's a good addition to the G.I. Joe team. Now, taking a look at the G.I. Joe Retaliator, the helicopter itself, start off with the blueprints. The first thing is... There's 11 things on the blueprints that it points out. And the first thing it talks about is the tail rotor, the number one reverse drive directional stabilizer with inductive fan. So this is a tail rotor, much like what would I would say was on the Locust uh, the, the same year. Uh, another fine helicopter, one I love immensely. And uh, on the toy itself, it looks pretty good. The rotor is also serves as the pivot point for the claw, the, the toy gimmick. And we'll talk about that again in a moment, but it does spin on its own. So it is, you know, you can turn it by hand to mimic the rotor going clockwise or counterclockwise, depending on how you're playing with the retaliator. I do think it is interesting that it can shift the, it can shift rotation. That's normally a feature that's not available on most helicopters. Number two is the manual activation material lift system, 
which is essentially pointing to the trigger, which when depressed releases the ratcheting mechanism so you can unwind the winch that the tow slash lifting cable and hook are attached to. Number three is aerodynamically designed body shaft. That's essentially the tail, which the tail rotor is connected to, that attaches to the main body of the retaliator. On the body side where it's attached is to the pivot point where it will rotate downwards to be almost completely underneath the main rotor. This is a decent design because the rotor would still be able to use the power of lift to lift up whatever is directly below the retaliator. However, where this design is less than optimal and I would have to have a good talk with Updraft is that when the tail swings below, the tail rotor will no longer be able to do its job as efficiently or effectively as the whole purpose of a tail rotor on a helicopter is to counteract the rotational forces of the blade. So whichever way the blade is spinning, the body of the helicopter is going to want to spin the opposite way. And the tail rotor is what prevents that from happening. So by the tail rotor being further away from the main rotor means it's easier, it, it's applying more torque or counter rotation with less force. So the further down it travels, the more force it's going to need to generate to counteract. Eventually, it will get so short as it rotates underneath the main rotor that it won't be effective at all. So again, this is a toy. It was known as the switchblade, and this pivoting mechanism is the primary reason for that original nickname. So I will just say it's a toy. Stop reading too much into it. But it's hard to shut off my 40-year-old brain when my 10-year-old brain probably wasn't thinking about that. It was just thinking that it's like, this is cool. It lifts up the figure with the claw and the hook. But that brings us to four, the Magna Torque Quick Elevation Tow Hook. That is the hook that's connected to the cable that raises and lowers with the winch. And five, we have the Quad 90 Super Speed Rotor Blades. There's four of these on the helicopter. And real quickly, let's say the Locust and the Dragonfly have two rotors. This is a four-rotor helicopter. And then you have like the Tomahawk, which is a five-rotor times two. So essentially, it comes down to this. Um, the more rotors your helicopter has, the more lift it can provide. And essentially, more rotors is heavier. So a light helicopter like a Fang or Locust or even a Dragonfly, because the Dragonfly, based on the real helicopter is essentially a lightweight <laughs> helicopter doesn't need that much lift but 
with the retaliator being one of its main features is lifting, um, it makes sense for it to have four rotors. So it's not a bad design. The other good thing about this and is something that would be corrected in the Eagle Hawk is the fact that these blades can pop out and pivot. They don't pop out and come off, but they pop out and pivot so it's easier to store these. The other thing about the rotor blades is that they are made of a softer plastic than the rest of the retaliator. So they do tend to droop and get misshapen, but nothing that a heat gun or a hairdryer won't fix or doing some other people's method of just leaving it upside down in the sun. The number six is the turbocharged high velocity thruster hover fans. So the hover fans are essentially what you spin with your hand and then the rotor goes with it. Now, talking about this, this is actually a two piece construction in the blueprints. And this is my main issue I had with the retaliator, the complete retaliator, but it wasn't complete with my retaliator from Joe Fest. So the outer part that you turn with your hands is connected via, they call it a clutch. It's essentially just an intermediary plastic piece that if it's missing, like the one on my Joe Fest, doesn't turn the rotor blades. The shaft doesn't really turn and it doesn't, it just prevents the, the helicopter from working as advertised. So the big thing was when I bought my second one on eBay, it was essentially a shell, but it was in good condition. It had some parts on it. Um, was, you know, I reached out to the seller and I says, can you please verify that the rotors turn when you turn the, the, the fan duct things? <laughs> wow, that was, that was the technical term, fan duct things. But the high-velocity thruster hover fans, when you turn those, um, you know, that's how exactly technically accurate my email was to the eBay seller who was selling this for his son. And he assured me that it did work, and then I clicked buy it now. And basically, the point is, I looked at trying to disassemble the one I had from Joe Fest, and, you know, this is a snap-on part where it's essentially, it's split down the middle and it compresses when you slide it on. However, this is 1990. This is the plastic that sometimes self-destructs, like the hammer. I didn't want to risk breaking or blemishing the main shaft where then the rotors wouldn't stick on and then it wouldn't work as a toy. So I didn't want to risk all of that. So obviously I bought the new shell. Next up is seven, the upward slide triple Bombay release area. And this is kind of a misnomer as this hold for the nine bombs doesn't slide. If anything, it pivots. If you, there's some clips near the, at the top of this that you can pinch and you can bring it down to load the bombs, but it doesn't release the bombs that way. The bombs release when you pull the landing gear forward and then they just slide down. Um, similar to the Cobra Condor, a lovely Cobra jet. 
So I don't agree with that because that's just not how it goes. But the nine bombs remind me that they're very traditional in appearance, molded in the same gray as the landing gear and the slide where they sit. It's, you know, they're not offensive. It looks good. And then we go to eight, the smooth touchdown landing skids. Now, the smooth touchdown landing skids, they're nice. Um, They're easily stressed. The pair I have on this one is not the pair it came with. The, The pair that I got with this shell were stressed. They even had a stress mark. So I switched them out for the one that I got from Joe Fest. The other thing, too, is these landing skids don't support the whole retaliator. They share the support when it's on your shelf or on the ground with the rear, essentially, tail fin, which is in a downward position. The part that you hold like a gun to pull the trigger, to release the winch, to do the tow hook. The design of the toy makes that a forgivable offense. While not realistically practical in the real world sense, it works. It also helps that the rear tail fin tees out essentially like rear ailerons on an airplane to provide a base so this thing isn't, you know, wobbling left or right, port or starboard when it's resting in position. So it's a stable base. We get to number nine, the protective windscreen canopy tinted with anti-ultraviolet coating. You know... We all knew in the 80s and even into the 90s that UV radiation causes skin cancer. And it's really good that our eyes are protected inside the retaliator. So uh, I'm really happy for the, the UV protection that it provides. It's essentially dark smoked glass. It's really hard to see through. It's very dark translucent. It's almost black. The other thing about the canopy is it is made of a similar plastic to that of a lot of other canopies in the Joe line, which means that heat and maybe even UV light, ironically enough, distorts it. So it's very common to see these a little bit distorted, not fitting exactly as they probably should have been in 1990. Next up is number 10, the 60 caliber hotspot machine gun. The hotspot machine gun is located directly underneath the landing gear, underneath the cockpit. So it's right central under the cockpit, and it goes up and down. It pivots up and down. It does not pan left or right. It's a little bit limited. Uh, I would think much like most attack helicopters, like the Dragonfly, it it should be able to go left or right. But again, this is probably at a point where they threw so much other engineering into the tilting tail and the tilting grabbing hook that this was probably something that was a compromise because of the other play features of the helicopter. 
And finally, on the blueprints, number 11, front end radar detection modulator and transmission center. And that's essentially the dark gray nose cone on the front of the Retaliator helicopter. It has some detail in the front. It looks pretty good. It could almost benefit from being a removable nose cone and that the radar portions is underneath. So let's say doing service. It is removable, but it doesn't really provide anything underneath. It's more of a cover to hide uh, some of the screw holes used for pre-assembly before getting to the consumer. Now, interestingly enough, they don't cover the four missiles, the two on each side of the Retaliator. Are they air-to-surface or air-to-air missiles? It's up to you. It's up to the child. It's up to whatever story you're telling. They look good. They go into essentially rubber mounts that are on each side underneath, let's say, some wings, but they're not mounted to the wings. So they're coming out of the body. They're not coming underneath the wing like traditionally a Dragonfly or Apache helicopters. Now, one place that the blueprints did not highlight, which should be highlighted, is the lovely, lovely cockpit. The cockpit has lots of great detail inside, lots of detail on each side of the pilot and gunner with just buttons and gauges and, you know, canisters all around. And it even has like a little detent for the character's heads. It's an absolute livable cockpit. You know, the seats have ridges to simulate, you know, where like a texture to the, to the seats. The only thing, honestly, that this thing is missing in the cockpit of the helicopter is just a yoke, you know, yoke and um, to, for, the, for the pilots. Other than that, this is one of the best detailed cockpits, I think, in the entire Joe line. The other thing, too, to point out, it does have seatbelts, as is common in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, one thing I want to point out, too, and I should have mentioned it during the rotors, is that the one thing that really, like, is the my, to me, the main detractor of this helicopter, and as we're working our way back to the, to the rear, is the helicopter rotor blades. The only problem I have with these helicopter rotor blades is the fact that they are not incredibly long. They are actually, I think, quite short. They're nowhere near the length of the dragonflies. They would almost say they're just a little bit, each blade is just a little bit longer than that of the locusts. Yes, there's four of them, but I know that this is at the point where the Geo Joe line is more about being a cool toy than it is being a model kit. I appreciate model kits, and I think the G.I. Joe line did a very good job making playable model kits, probably from factors, from parents and organizations and stuff like that and laws. You know, these got shortened up. They're a little softer, which is good. You know, they're less likely to break. They're foldable, which is something that the G.I. Joe team needed to add very early on. 
Um, you know, I'm looking at my tomahawk with one broken blade that needs to be replaced. But really, that's the only thing that this helicopter to me needs to complete its look is just a better rotor blade. That being said, it is a pain in the rear to disassemble this. Again, going from my parts and my Joe Fest retaliators to make this one, the parts one, now my main one, is it's hard to disassemble. It was a mine, my Joe Fest one was not assembled correctly and I couldn't reassemble it correctly. But it was almost to the point where you could take the blades out. But if this is assembled correctly, you're not taking it apart and the blades are not coming back out with it unless you're cutting them off. And I'm not doing that. But this would be a prime candidate if you could make or 3D print or mold your own longer blades. And I think this would be an absolute stunner of a helicopter, especially late in the G.I. Joe line as it is. 1990s, pretty late for toys like this. I assembled a G.I. Joe razor blade. It's nowhere near the balance of toy and model kit that this thing is. Another thing, too, to point out is that canopy, real quick, is the canopy tabs. Just be careful. I know on my Raider, I broke one of the tabs, essentially taking pictures of it after I did my review. And I can foresee that happening, too. Now, going back to the tail, to the tail rotor, the hook and winch system, that was another area I needed to address in doing these. So my parts one was missing the hook and cord altogether, so I took it off the Joe Fest one, put it on. I tried to untie the knot. I used a magnifier and I used tweezers, and all I ended up doing was fraying the, the knot and making it worse so this way it wouldn't even be able to be retied much less untied. So I ended up having to cut it. Thankfully, the original owner tied it very close to the end. So I didn't lose too much length when I had to retie it on this one. Now, the other thing being, while we're still talking about the tail, is this plastic, again, is from 1990. And 1990 was a year they kind of experimented. And I'm not sure if that was Hasbro or the factory they kind of experimented with the plastic, so it feels very rigid. And in my hand, it feels like I'm worried about snapping something when I go to pivot it down or use the hook. So I'm very careful to look. It doesn't, I don't play with it like a kid. And the other thing is, I'm not too worried about essentially the tail portion going down underneath the main rotor. I can do it. I've done it in the past. I had to do it during when I was reconstructing my retaliator. But for me and the realness or the realistic um, application of a tail rotor swinging all the way down below the main rotor, I don't need to do that. The final part of the retaliator that, again, is surprisingly not on the blueprints is the grabber claw that pivots down from the tail rotor section of the retaliator. It is designed to be used either in conjunction with the main pivot point underneath the main rotor or on its own. 
it has a secondary trigger that is forward of the winch trigger, and that activates the claw. The claw retracts using a rubber band that, again, um, we all know 30-year-old rubber does rot out and break. We all have O-rings, fellas. And, you know, the plastic is very thin. This is something that if it gets twisted, I'm sure it will break. And if it doesn't go back, chances are the rubber band is broken or weak. And that will affect it going in or out of the main body itself. It is a solid design. It has some detail that goes along that gives it like a structural element to it that makes it look strong. Much like the tail of the retaliator having the holes that go alongside it. It gives it the industrial aesthetic that this is a working helicopter as well, not just as a attack helicopter. Um, this aesthetic reminds me of the Sikorsky Sky Crane, for instance. When this is all folded up, it looks fine as is, as just a traditional helicopter, but this whole activity going on in the tail section, definitely there's a lot of engineering involved, and it does add to the play factor of the toy, which gives it more bang for the buck. Now that we've covered the vehicle, you know, I didn't even go into detail on the tannish olive drab color of the main body of this and the, you know, the engine detail behind the rotor. It is, it's a lovely helicopter. I like this a lot. So let's talk about the crew. Who would I have crew it besides updraft as pilot? You know, throw lift ticket in it. You can throw wild bill in it. Windmill if you custom paint him, maybe. I'm still hesitant to throw in characters like Freefall, you know, Ripcord would be the same style, you know, Airborne Troopers. You know, maybe somebody like Crazy Legs would fit into this. You know, Night Force Crazy Legs would be perfectly in tune with the color scheme of this and Updraft's color scheme. Airborne would be another good choice. I would lean towards a character with a helmet. You know, you could even put 94 Flint in this. I think 94 Flint would be a good fit for this. There's characters to throw in this. Or if this is a rescue helicopter, I will say this, where Wild Bill had Doc, you could say Updraft has Stretcher. The only problem is, where would Stretcher put his little glidey thing, uh, his little, you know, gliding skateboard for <laughs> rescuing people? And, you know, maybe that, but you could still do that. You know, there's a lot of possibility. The hook, lifting up, you know, Joe vehicles, you know, especially the smaller ones, like a Vamp or a Badger, Tiger Paw, Triple T. I like the fact that it has that bubbly aesthetic like the Raider. It's not hard and angular, let's say, like a Havoc or LCV. So they've really hit a sweet spot to me in design on this thing. You know, the play pattern for this is I would treat it almost like today in play. I would treat it like a modern or the updated Dragonfly. It would be the attack, the attack helicopter, lifting things, you know, a good all-purpose helicopter. Now, its use in media is kind of limited. It was used in the Deke cartoon, and I really haven't watched much of Deke, and I can't really recall any use in the comic books. So... Where do I place this in my collection? Well, 
I've been on the hunt for this. It's late November as I'm recording this, and I've been thinking about this thing since May. And this episode has been put off a few times since I fixed this one up in late September, early October. If you caught it on the social medias, you could the the two pictures or the picture I took of it, and it's parts one with everything. Um, you know, this is a solid, you know, f- four helicopter. Does it belong in every collection? Maybe not, but I think it deserves a second look for most collections. If it you don't have it already and you like later stuff in G.I. Joe, you don't need the hardcore you know, derived from military, you know, aesthetic, and you don't mind having something that's a little bit off. Like I said, the only thing off on this thing is the rotor blades. Other than that, re- in reality, it is a four out of five. I mean, I could even squeeze it up to a four and a half if I really needed to. It's really close to being a perfect G.I. Joe vehicle. I think it is a great G.I. Joe vehicle. And that concludes this missile for the masses. Thank you listeners for joining me. Uh, talk about my life of collecting and the GI Joe retaliator. Also, I would like to mention that I have recently restocked on t-shirts. So if you listen to the chaplains, this is motorpod and you would like to wear some merch, um, it is available directly for myself um, my good friends, Robert Barons Inc., prints them up for me, and they're available. Just email chaplainjoepod at gmail.com, and I'll get you the information, and I can send you a really nice T-shirt. All the sizes are available from small to triple XL. So if you guys are interested in uh, supporting the show, um, that's one way you can do it. And again, just email me at chaplainjoepod at gmail.com. This has been the 56th Chaplain's Assistance Motorpod. I have been your host, Gary. And if you've enjoyed this, feel free to rate and review wherever you listen to, whether that's your Apple Podcasts app, your Google Play, your Spotify, or Good Pods. Please rate and review. That only helps grow and improve this podcast. Also, if you're listening on Spotify, Spotify for Podcasters, the host, you can answer the question or the poll that accompanies this podcast. For more Chaplain's Motorpod, you can follow me on social media at Chaplain Joe Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and even YouTube. You can also reach out to Chaplain Joe Pod at gmail.com. The Chaplain's Motorpod is the strange but not as strange, nerdy little brother of the pint, a pop culture podcast. Now, with all of that out of the way, one final missile for the masses, be decent to each other. So I didn't want to risk it. I didn't want to have the main shaft have a problem because then it's really broken. like what I just dropped. His file card is 
like I said earlier, it's not too bad. It doesn't really tell you too much about him other than he's a great pilot, but it doesn't make him sound like a superhero, that he's the best pilot ever. And with the Joe team stacked with the likes of Wild Bill and Lift Ticket, hey, you could even say Windmill, 